You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Let's begin with an unscientific experiment. Uh, Hey, Gary? Yeah. Are you willing to step into this storage room here? Uh, Sure, I guess. The thermostat in there is on the blink, so it's at about 40 degrees. Yikes. But it's just for a few minutes. Okay, uh, can I grab my jacket? No, you're not going to need that. Uh, It sounds like I do. No, well, you're not going to get that. But but really, Gary, I mean, this this is only for a few minutes. It's not going to hurt. And this is for science? Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. Okay, well, we'll just let them cool off in there for a while. I mean, really, it'll be okay. Here's the point. Humans don't much like being cold without protection, and it doesn't take long for a body exposed to extreme cold to begin to suffer. Now, Gary won't suffer too much because it's not that cold, but if we drop the temperature 40 degrees or so to between zero and negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit, in just five minutes, frostbite could set in. So imagine what might happen to your body if we go colder, much colder. Imagine experiencing negative 280 degrees. Now, that sort of cold is only found naturally on places like the moon or just plain old outer space, but we can create it here on Earth. It's extreme, all right, but some people claim that a dose of it is good for your health. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology and devote one episode a month to critical thinking, skeptic check. In this show, we've learned we should come in out of the cold, but some claim that chilly temperatures not only promote youth and longevity, but could even be used as a means of coming back from the dead. That is, if you're patient enough to wait for the technology of reanimation. We'll look at cryotherapy, cryonic suspension, and the physiology of cold. Oh, and we almost forgot. Gary, you can come on out. So, uh, how do you feel? Um, pretty cold. But you were able to survive. Well, yeah. I mean, my hands are pretty numb, but I survived, sure. How would you feel if your office were at that temperature? Uh, disgruntled. So it's not a comfortable temperature? No, not at all. I I would definitely have to wear some uh, extra layers if my office was that temperature. Well, that was just a warm-up, so to speak, Gary. We're about to go to much colder temperatures than that. It's Skeptic Check. How low can you go? Can I get my jacket now? Ernest Shackleton, he's sort of a hero of mine. Most famous of the Antarctic explorers back at the turn of the last century, he not only went to Antarctica, but he wintered over. And he then crossed thousands of miles of icy water in what was no more than a lifeboat, and all before the invention of Gore-Tex. The record low on the Antarctic continent, by the way, is minus 128 degrees. And yet, even Sir Ernest Shackleton didn't come close to experiencing the gelid temperatures that this man did in Los Angeles. My name is Seth Abramovich. I'm a senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. As you can imagine, Seth Abramovich gets some pretty squirrely assignments there in La La Land. He's written about movie stars, scandals, and serious cases of medical fraud. But one day, his editor gave him an assignment that was pretty offbeat, even for him. The assignment was to take a look at what the latest, most cutting-edge and out-there 
techniques there are for longevity, for lengthening one's lifespan. And uh, the crazier and nuttier they sounded, the more I was into it. And into small rooms and pods he went. So this was not an assignment for the claustrophobic. One therapy involved getting into a pod that recreated conditions at very high altitude, which is purported to be good for circulation and general well-being. But he said that perhaps the most bizarre of all the therapies he tried was the cryotherapy chamber. Temperatures within beat the record cold of anywhere on Earth, and he came to know what negative 280 degrees felt like. Not even Sir Shackleton experienced that. Well, it may not be surprising to hear that Hollywood, with its obsession on youth and fitness, is hot for a health trend. But cryotherapy salons are popping up all over the United States, New York, Minneapolis, Kansas City. The therapy made the news when, in the fall of 2015, a woman who was an assistant in a Nevada spa died in a cryo chamber. So why would anyone submit to shivery, body-numbing temperatures in the first place? Well, proponents say that the low temperature stimulates cells to fight inflammation, and giving yourself the cold shoulder may even have anti-aging benefits. Reporter Seth Abramovich stripped away the hype and stripped down to his skivvies to find out more about the chill settling over Hollywood. I would say it is a trend. It's hit the sort of professional sports world first, and then it trickled down to the arts and entertainment world. Uh, And the way I found out about it was on something as simple as Facebook. A friend of mine is in a relationship with the head of a, a major cable network, I won't name which, and they put up pictures on their Facebook page of them wearing these white robes and doing something called cryotherapy. And I was researching the story, so I asked, what is cryotherapy? I had never heard of it. And he said, it's you go into a room, the temperature drops to like minus 280, and it's very good for what ails you. So I looked up the place he mentioned and uh, gave him a call, and I said, I'm doing this story. Would you have me over to try out your technique? Okay. We want to hear about your experience with cryotherapy. Uh, But first, a little bit more background. So you said the temperature dips to 280, did you say? I think it ranges minus 220 to minus 280. It's actually much colder than the coldest temperature ever recorded on Earth. And uh, well, what can I say? It's so cold that your body doesn't even know how to really register it. But the body can survive those temperatures for a short duration. Yes, very short, under now, three minutes. Under three minutes. Okay. Um, now, the origins of cryotherapy are not in L.A. They're not in California. It's my understanding they're in Japan. Yes, I understand that as well. Uh, It started in the 70s in Japan, uh, and the fellow who brought it to Los Angeles is actually a German doctor. So I guess it went from Japan to Europe and then finally to Los Angeles, and now it seems like it's trickling out into the rest of the United States. Well, what was it developed for? It was a therapy to help cure what sort of ailments? This is for, you know, joint and bone, you know, aches and pains, and it's the equivalent of an ice bath, you're just using very, very cold air. And basically the people who do cryotherapy say it goes beyond just cold compress healing to to all kinds of promises, uh, that it improves everything. It uh, reverses the aging process and digestion, weight loss, everything that you could possibly want from a process like this, it's promising. That is quite a claim to reverse the aging process. Now, is that the claim that was made in L.A. at the cryotherapy spa that you went to, or what what were the purported health benefits? You know, basically he says that inflammation is the source of all problems, all ailments, has some inflammation component to it. And this stops the inflammation process. He also talked about certain amino proteins that it produces. And it was a lot of sort of mumbo jumbo to someone like me, but people were coming and going and there was a lot of bustling activity and there was a lot of excitement, it seemed, around people who were using this. It's not completely out of the realm of of reality because, you know, you have these professional athletes that uh, go into an ice bath after punishing their bodies. And it's basically the same thing. You're making your body very cold, and uh, it's reducing inflammation. and But, you know, they, they say that the benefits really affect your mood, affect everything. A cold is, is the cure for what ails you. Now, Seth, have any of these health claims and have these cryotherapy spas been tested by the FDA? 
They have not, and they are not approved by the FDA. And there are some dangers. For example, a woman who worked in a cryotherapy spa in Nevada died in the fall of 2015 by freezing to death. Do you know what happened? That was very terrifying, and the second I read it, I said, oh my God, that was what I did, (laughs) and could that have happened to me? It was an unusual case in that she was left completely alone in the cryotherapy clinic. She was an attendant, and it sounded like she went inside to give herself a self-treatment, and uh, something happened to make her lose consciousness, and she spent the entire night in there, and like out of some horror movie, she was frozen solid into a solid block and killed. And as you said, she was an attendant there, so presumably she knew what the rules were and that you should only go into this chamber for a couple minutes. Right, and the industry was quick to mention that and that you should never do it alone. There should always be another person watching you. But it's still incredibly unsettling. Now, Seth, you went to a cryotherapy spa in L.A., and I wonder if you could describe the experience for us. I believe in your article on the subject, you described getting into this chamber as stepping into a time machine, which Uh makes me wonder if you've ever stepped into a time machine, and that might be the subject of another interview, but but describe (laughs) it for us. I've never stepped into a time machine, but I imagine it wouldn't be unlike this, which is, you know, you strip down and uh, you're given a bathrobe and um, men are permitted to keep their underwear on, but uh, women go completely in the buff. And you're given a special kind of sock and uh, I believe gloves as well. And that's because your extremities are more susceptible to frostbite, I guess. Are you saying that and I don't want to get too personal here, that your underwear, that a thin bit of cotton, uh, I'm assuming that it's cotton, would have prevented you from getting frostbite? I mean, that's what they said. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't see how. I mean, it's, like you said, a very thin layer of cotton. Um, But uh, I was was happy to leave them on anyway, if only for my mental stability. (laughs) Okay. Moving right along. All right. So what happened next? So... There's two kinds of machines. One, your head protrudes from it, and it's sort of a cylindrical-shaped machine. And, uh, you know, the frozen nitrogen kind of spills over into a kind of fog that comes out, and it looks very Frankensteinian. Um, But they put me into their cutting-edge brand-new machine, which is the more time machine-looking one. So that is a chamber completely sealed off uh, with a sort of glass window that you can peer out of and a big sort of display on the front with all kinds of digital readout numbers and and buttons, and that's the sort of time machine element. And then when it's ready, the door opens and this gust of uh, vapor comes out, which again, time machine-like. And um, you go inside, and they tell you to take your robe off and hang it up. So right now you're almost completely naked in the machine. And then they set the amount of time they deem to be what you need. And you stand there and you hope for the best. <laughs> and, and, and what amount of time did they deem that you needed? They did me in two separate, you know, sessions back to back. And I think it was 90 seconds each one or maybe two minutes. Uh, it wasn't the maximum because I didn't, wouldn't let them do that. But I did let them do two. So it was sort of did one, got out, felt I had survived, then did the second one. You know, I I was comforted by the fact that there was many attendants and the main doctor there and all kinds of people standing around. So I figured, well, if all these people are watching me do this, they certainly aren't watching me march off to my frigid death. Well, when the doors snap shut, this is, this is a key detail in my mind. Mm-hmm. Do they lock? Do you hear a locking sound? <laughs> no. As far as I understood it, I could push it open at, at any time. But the, the thing is that you don't, your body is not familiar with the sense of being plunged into this extreme cold. So at first you don't really feel anything. And then you start to feel a kind of burning sensation and you're not sure if that's normal or not. So for me, it was less the fact that I could get out, more the fact that uh, like a frog in the boiling water kind of thing, that you, something terrible is happening to you, but it's happening so gradually that you're not aware of it. What did the attendants of the cryotherapy say you would feel afterward? They say you, it takes, you know, a few minutes and then you start to feel uh, just, they use the word good, I think, but you'd, you're, you just feel healthy, exhilarated, awake. Your skin feels 
tight and just like the blood is flowing and you just feel like you've gotten, I don't know, a shot of vitamin B to your rear end or you just feel like Superman. And how did you actually feel when you left the cryotherapy chamber? Um, <laughs> the first session I got out and I was just, I think, overcome with relief, which is actually a really nice feeling. So I was feeling good. And then they encouraged me to do the second one, and I did, and I got out. And, you know, nothing felt completely out of whack when I got out. It was later in the day when I started to not feel so well. Say more. What happened? <laughs> well, I went straight back to the office and to my desk, and I told some people what I had done, and they sounded, you know, sort of amused and bewildered. And then I'd say maybe... Like an hour later, I started to feel a burning on my shins. A bit, you know, as if you had been skiing and that, you know, if you ski and sometimes you get that wind burn on your face and it kind of stings. It was like that, but it was on my legs. And I also, I don't know if this was just in my head, but I started to feel uneasy and a little nauseous. And I don't know if that was just regret <laughs> or if it really had done something odd to to my metabolism and Whatever it was, I started to get a little nervous that afternoon, that, like I had done something wrong to my body. And did the feelings pass, or did you have them checked out by a doctor? I did, and I monitored it, and then about a day later, I was, I was back to normal. It sounds like an adventure, and I wonder how it fits into some of the other technologies that you took a look at um, in your piece on anti-aging techniques. Where does it rate on the scale of... I don't know, oddness, extreme. <laughs> it was extremeness. definitely the strangest one I did. And as far as its, you know, claims, its scientific veracity, I, I'm sure that these athletes, you know, it's not in their head and it must offer them some kind of relief. I just know that it's not for me personally. Well, Seth Abramovich, thank you so much for speaking with us. We can definitely say you are one cool guy. <laughs> thank you very much. Seth Abramovich is senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. Well, he seems to feel that cryotherapy isn't for him. But could there be something to the claim that very cold temperatures really have a salubrious effect? Gordon Giesbrecht is a professor of thermal physiology at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. We'll speak to him later about the physiology of cold in general. But first, what he thinks of the anti-aging claims of cryotherapy proponents. Well, we have anecdotal evidence, first of all, like, you know, the typical fin we know can go for a leisurely swim for five or ten minutes in the middle of winter, and they're supposedly so healthy, right? But uh, there have been a handful of scientific studies on the cryotherapy that you just suggested. At this point, the results are inconclusive, so I wouldn't recommend or not recommend it. The only thing I would suggest is you make sure that you wear something on your hands and on your feet, like you're instructed to do, so that you don't get frostbite. Uh, you're not going to be hypothermic in two or three minutes. That's impossible. I'm not so sure about any clinical relevance, though, All at right. this point. <laughs> well, it sounds kind of cool, but it's not going to prevent wrinkles or aging or anything like that. I don't think so. Well, it doesn't sound like the efficacy of this uh, cryotherapy is yet proven. It's certainly promising a lot, but it hasn't yet proven that it can deliver. On the other hand, you know, it may be a little uncomfortable, but it's very short. And the other thing it has going for it is it's like stepping into a time machine, at least according to Seth. Well, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't take you either forward or backward in time, unless, of course, it really does remove those wrinkles. Uh, maybe it can take you forward because you get into one of these cryo chambers and just the fear of being locked in, which is what my fear might be, would aid you. <laughs> might be good for Hollywood if they need you to play an older part. Well, weather studies do show one day that there are benefits. We need to know what extreme cold does to the human body, the physiology of cold, and that's next. Then later in the show, the growing popularity, not of cryotherapy, but cryonic suspension, putting bodies on ice after they die in the hope of reanimating them later on. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check, How Low Can You Go?
A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it sounds like there's no evidence yet that cryotherapy can keep you young, but could there be other health or medical benefits to extreme cold? Well, to find out, we need to know about how the body reacts when thermometer readings dive. And we once again turn to physiologist Gordon Giesbrecht. Gordon, our average body temperature is 98.6. Now let's start with an extreme case. At what temperature do we die of the cold? Well, that's a very uh, interesting question uh, that can't be answered, actually. Uh, Basically, we know that once your temperature goes down to around 82 or 80 degrees, you're at risk of having your heart stop. And normally that's curtains when your heart stops, but when you're cold, your body is using much less oxygen and you can actually last a bit longer than you normally would without the cooling. We have lots of cases where people have been down below 60 degrees and a few even down to 57 degrees, about three or four, and they've survived. So uh, we used to have a, a cutoff somewhere in Fahrenheit around 65 degrees. You would say if someone is colder than that and their heart's not working, they're dead. But, uh, you know, we really follow the axiom that says you're never dead unless you're warm and dead. Well, you say 60 degrees, 65 degrees, 50 degrees, but you're not talking about the environmental temperature, of course. You're talking about the temperature of our body, the so-called core temperature. But maybe you can explain to me, where would I have to put a thermometer to measure my core temperature? Yeah, first, the core temperature relates to at least the heart, lungs, and brain. The best place to do that, uh, especially if you're not in a hospital, is it's called esophageal temperature. You put something down the nose, and it goes in about behind the heart, and that's about as close as you can get to the heart. And the heart temperature is what really matters, because in hypothermia, the death is usually caused by the heart stopping. The brain is not usually an issue if you're uh, still breathing, and, and even if your metabolism slows, the brain is actually protected by cold, but uh, it's the heart you're worried about. Well, that doesn't seem very cold to me. I mean, it's kind of the same temperature as a fall day, and yet you're saying that if my core temperature gets down to, I don't know, 60 degrees, I've had it, how is it that that kills me? Yeah, if you try to compare core temperature to room temperature, uh, it does seem strange, but it doesn't work that way. A normal core temperature right now, you and I, have a core temperature of, you know, the average 98.6, which in room temperature would be like a sauna almost. So we're just made so that our tissues are, you know, up around the high 90s in Fahrenheit. And uh, to get down to 60 is very, very cold. In the past, when people have been found in the mountains or wherever with low core temperatures, maybe not even a pulse, they were just, you know, they were given up for dead generally. But that's not necessarily the way it happens anymore. Right. Well, we, you know, I've been involved in a couple of sets of uh, guidelines for treatment of hypothermia. And like I said, we used to have a cutoff around 65 Fahrenheit. And we've basically gotten rid of that. So we have no lower temperature limit now. We basically uh, say as long as you can do CPR on a person, then start CPR, get some air into them and treat them, get them to a hospital. Basically, unless someone is frozen solid or they have an obvious fatal injury, then uh, treat them because these four cases that I mentioned to you earlier all would not have been treated 20 years ago. So those that are brought back, as it were, from the uh, cold edge of death this way, are they okay? I mean, won't they have suffered irreversible brain damage? Well, 
it's interesting. If someone drowns in cold water, they have a, a really good chance of uh, having brain damage. But if someone is, uh, you know, a terrestrial, you're out, you find them in a snowbank, and if you can get them back, the odds are pretty good that their mental capacity eventually will return to, to normal. Okay, so it sounds as though cold temperatures slow down your heart, but as long as it keeps beating, there is a chance you can be brought back to the land of the living. And that's why he said that the adage is you're not dead unless you're warm and dead. So if you're cold, maybe you're not dead. Right. So the question is, if cold temperatures kind of slow you down, does that offer a possibility of medical benefit? Well, Dr. Giesbrecht says that chilling a patient was used in surgery in the 1960s, before cardiopulmonary bypasses were developed, to give surgeons a brief window of time in which to work. They would anesthetize a patient that needed heart or brain surgery and cool them down in ice to a core temperature of about 50 degrees. And then, because of the low oxygen requirements of the brain, then they could do 60 to 90 minutes of surgery. Uh, before they warmed them up and started the heart again. Well, okay, so about an hour's time out for a body that was undergoing surgery. But what about the use in cases of trauma? Could cold be used to stabilize a person who's been badly injured? It's a bit of an interesting dichotomy because if you get someone who has had a lot of trauma, severe trauma in the hospital, being cold when they come in is a bad sign. They're likely to do much worse. But... If someone comes in who has had enough trauma and they have bled enough that they're in shock and their heart has stopped because they have low blood volume, then uh, basically you have nothing to lose with these people because they're already arrested. And they basically infuse the blood volume with cold saline and cool the temperature back down to about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And now they are like you know, that surgical situation back in the 60s I told you about, and that now buys the surgeons an hour or so to try and fix the wounds and all the holes in the person so that when they uh, reinfuse blood into them, they keep it all and they don't bleed out again. I kind of call it the double-edged sword. Cold can kill you if you're out in the wilderness, but in the hospital in certain situations, cold can be very helpful. Okay, so extreme cold can actually become a sort of protectant, but how much of one? It sounds like you could be put into a state somewhat like suspended animation in which your metabolism slows to the point where your brain and organs can survive on just a whiff of oxygen, but could it preserve your body long-term? We discussed cryotherapy earlier. Now here's a more dramatic use of cold, cryonic suspension. This is the idea that if you put your body on ice after you die, you will remain preserved until medical science has advanced sufficiently to cure whatever killed you in the first place. Right. So if you die of cancer and you come back to life in 2080 or whatever, maybe cancer has been cured and you can be fixed. But there's that other part, coming back to life, that's tricky. Can we do it? Given what we've learned about the medical benefits of chilly temperatures, we asked Dr. Giesbrecht one more question. Could we put people into indefinite deep freeze, even after death, as they often do in science fiction? This is a very interesting question, and I get it all the time. Uh, you know, if they're cooling people, uh, you know, like Dr. Tishman is doing, is that the same as cryopreservation? Uh, the key difference is if you cool someone, like I just described, down to, say, 50 degrees, you have bought yourself an hour, and then you have to do something to reoxygenate the body. When you talk about, you know, preserving someone, you know, for several years or decades until they come up with a cure for their disease, you're not oxygenating that body. You're just cooling it off and then leaving it there. And I'm not sure that we're very close to being able to do that. We can buy short periods of time, like an hour, and then we have to reoxygenate. Well, it sounds like cryonic suspension isn't quite ready for prime time, but uh, Gordon Giesbrecht, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Well, thanks, and as we say to everyone who leaves our lab, keep cool, but don't freeze. (laughs) Gordon Giesbrecht is professor of thermal physiology at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada.
Well, it raises a few questions. Uh, yes. yes. It may raise people from the dead, too, but I'm a little skeptical, as is he. And who knows, what if these guys give up their business, or the business just goes belly up anyhow, or, or maybe the power goes out for a week. I mean, this, this sounds a little dicey, even aside from the technological challenges. I'm not sure I'd take a chance on cryonics. No, but what if others had throughout history, and it worked? Comes with Benny's. That's great. I accept. Bye. Well, Gerald, you just inherited a business. Uh, what? I have a job in Cincinnati with stock options. Well, wait a minute. Me? Well, but there, there are too many tanks. You'll be fine. But if it feels like too much, reduce the inventory. Bring back the older ones a little early. That'll cut down on refrigeration costs. Yeah, but but I... You'll be fine. Hey, look, I got a flight to catch. Yeah, we see. I... Oh, uh, here's the keys. Catch you on the flip side. Okay, Gerald, you can do this. Don't panic. Think pragmatic like you did when you were trapped in that self-driving car. Trimming this operation, that makes sense. So who on this list could go? Oh, Tank 47, Alexander III of Macedonia. Well, he's been here a long time. Let's see, which button do I press? Uh, oh, reanimate. Alexandros. Wow, right out of the history books. And you speak only Greek. Well, you might have been great 2,300 years ago, but I'm really not sure how you're going to fit into today's job market. Not sure what you just said, but there's the door. I mean, if you can conquer the Persian Empire, you're going to do just fine in D.C. Maybe the Pentagon can use you. Ah, Pentagon. Ainai Elinus. You know what? Here's my bus pass. Good luck, Alex. Okay, uh, who else? Let's see. There's Tank 77, a G-Con. There's also Tank 83, woman from Stratford-upon-Avon. Well, they're old-timers. Be free. art a sight. Huh? And such nimbleness with language. I would challenge you to a battle of wits, but I see you are unarmed. Looks like her tank didn't open all the way, but you seem okay. Hi, uh, I'm Gerald. So, like, you've been reanimated in the 21st century. You just missed Alexander the Great. Ah, the time is out of joint. And this is Genghis. Alex didn't speak English. I don't expect Genghis will say much. Men of few words are the best men. <clears throat> My throat is drier than the Gobi Desert. That's a joke. Almighty oh, Asia Minor, I have returned. Wow, you speak English? A dozen tongues are at my command. Also, I had an English nanny. Ah, like Juliet. Good, good nurse. Speak. Uh, what? Whoa, careful there, Genghis. That's my smartphone. I will use this button to unlock the magical box. Whoa, impressively intuitive. No, seriously, G-Man, can you put that thing down? Ah, I see it contains a means of messaging over great distances. And a map. Okay, Google. Map of Mongolia. This could be useful. Tis not complexity that discourages the gent. Try uniting a dozen warring tribes. That is complexity. This box combines functionality with design simplicity, like my first iron saber. I shall keep the box. Uh, uh, no. The Empire awaits. Cheerio. Farewell. Parting is such sweet sorrow. I don't mean to offend, but, you know, you seem pretty well read for a woman from a country town in the 16th century. I mean, what did you do in Stratford? I was a writer. <laughs> Still am, it seems. You might say a ghost writer. Twas for a lovely gent who so eagerly wished upon himself the talents of a playwright. Alas, of these, he was totally bereft. I mean, to be honest, the guy stank. I'm uh, kind of confused by a lot of things right now. Ah, uh, but expectation is the root of all heartache. May I ask a cup of tea? I think I need to lie down. Maybe get in tank 77. 
Well, it sounds like coming back from the ice might get messy. And at the moment, there is no known technology to thaw and revive clients. And you may think it will never be developed. But tell that to the cryonic companies in business now, selling the possibility of immortality. Find out what it costs to put your body on ice next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic Check, how low can you go? I wouldn't say that the cryonics business is booming, but neither is it going bust. Investment in the big chill is growing, I I guess you could say at a glacial pace. There are a handful of companies in the United States and in Russia, and a new cryonics laboratory is proposed for Australia. Now, if Status Systems gets up and running, that'll be the first cryonics lab in the Southern Hemisphere. You could be under, down under. Sociologist and historian Grant Shostal is waiting to see if the Australian initiative comes online. The visiting professor at Williams College is doing research for a book about the history of cryonics and the line dividing science and pseudoscience. Given what we've learned about the potential of deep cold to have medical benefits, but also about the limit of cells to exist without oxygen, in which camp does cryonics fall? Okay, Professor, give me cryonics 101. Cryonic suspension or cryonics is the practice of preserving human bodies by perfusing them with with chemical protectants and gradually subjecting them at the moment of death to extremely low temperatures, which are then controlled and maintained over the long term by uh, liquid nitrogen-filled cryostats or or doers, cylindrical containers that that house the suspended body. So, So what you're saying there is that they first inject something into your bloodstream and then they just cool you down to way below freezing. Right. Uh, essentially, your, your body is perfused with cryoprotectants, the idea being that certain chemicals will, will protect the integrity of your, of your cells as you're frozen. Okay. Now, the idea here, of course, is not, you know, just to be put on ice, but to be taken off ice, if you will, sometime in the future when they have the technology to defrost you and, you know, make sure you're still alive when they do that and then presumably cure you of whatever it was that caused your death in the first place. Yeah, that's right. I like to, when I'm introducing cryonic suspension to people, I like to key them into a a phrase that was coined uh, during the 1960s, but which has become something of a a hallowed commonplace among Latter-day cryonics advocates, and that's freeze weight reanimate. The idea is that you're, you're waiting for technology to advance to such a point that uh, at some point in the future, technologies will be available to facilitate uh, a recovery, uh, a reanimation uh, from the deanimated process. So uh, the idea is that you'd be revived by technology at some point in the future. Yeah, but there's a, there's a caveat here. There's some fine print, right? Because right. There is no guarantee that you will be revived. I mean, if you pay to have this done, mm-hmm. uh, you're you're betting on the development of technology that hasn't yet been developed or certainly not demonstrated. And we're also assuming that if you do come back, there'll be a cure for, you know, whatever it was that killed you, too. No, that's right. People in the cryonics community like to think of this as, as the second worst thing that could happen to your body. Many of them view it as, as an experiment, the idea being that it's, it's better to be in a state of, of cryonic suspension, anticipating that there's some hope in the future of, of technologies working in your favor rather than, than being buried or, or cremated. Yeah, well, I, I, I suppose there's some truth in that because there's a very little chance that if you're cremated, they're ever going to bring you back. I mean, that's, that's right, for sure. Right this you may, are, Seth. This may be a long shot, but maybe it's better than no shot. Well, how widespread is this practice? I mean, there is a new cryonics facility apparently opening in Australia. 
Do you have any idea of how big this industry is? Oh, it's, rel it's a relatively small movement. I mean, it has its roots in the 1960s, but I mean, it never really caught on. As, as I have it, there are basically five organizations worldwide that are offering this service. Uh, the Alcor Life Extension Foundation in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Cryonics Institute in Michigan. And then in Russia, in Moscow, you have Cryoris, which, which opened within the last 10 years. More recently, you have Oregon Cryonics. And then as you, as you mentioned, the Stasis Systems Foundation in Australia. So between between these five organizations, if my if my numbers are close, the last time I counted, there are basically about 325 people approximately presently in cryonic suspension, uh, right, awaiting reanimation, and uh, approximately something like 2,200 people have have signed up to be placed into suspension upon the pronouncement of, of legal death. Well, that's a step up. I have to say that about 20 years ago, I was sitting on a plane next to a guy who was the head of one of these organizations, and I asked him how many people worldwide were on ice. Oh, and, really? And, yeah, the response was like 65. So it sounds like it's gone up by a considerable amount. I guess more people are uh, taking advantage of this, if, if there is some advantage. One myth is that Walt Disney was uh, cryonically preserved. Is that true? No, that's that's not true. Walt Disney was actually cremated. His ashes are, are interned in the Forest Lawn Cemetery in California. All right. Now, what does this cost? I mean, who's paying for this? <laughs> well, basically, uh, I'm most familiar with the financial arrangements that take shape at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation in, in Scottsdale. And, and basically what happens is you take out an insurance policy and you make Alcor the beneficiary. The last time I checked, in order to have your whole body suspended, it costs uh, something in the neighborhood of $180,000. And for, for the head only or, or a neuro suspension, um, that's closer to, to $80,000. Yeah, but that sounds like a poorer bet, if you will. I mean, if you, if you just have your head frozen, I mean, if you bring that back, you've got the problem that there's no body. Well, right. And, and the assumption accompanying that, Seth, is that if the technology is advanced enough uh, to facilitate reanimation uh, from a state of cryonic suspension, then they're also banking on the fact that there will be technology on hand to create a new body or, or to download your identity, that is, into a machine embodiment or, or something of that nature. So there are a lot of assumptions at play there. Maybe you could describe for me, Grant, what mm -hmm. one of these facilities would look like if I walked in. I mean, you know, uh, do I just see sort of meat hooks with frozen bodies on them? What, what? Uh, no, no, nothing, uh, nothing of the sort. I've not visited uh, a facility myself. I hope to, to visit Alcor this summer. But, you know, you can expect to see a facility that resembles a, something uh, along the lines of, of a boutique medical facility. I'm most familiar with what the, the patient storage bays look like. You'll see something resembling... Uh, an upkept warehouse housing cylindrical doers that are chrome and each of these doers, if I recall correctly, holds something like four cryonic suspension patients and you'll see several of these lined up in the storage bay. Okay, that sounds like something I'd see in a science fiction movie. So there would be sort of rows of these big tanks, doers, essentially, if you will, metal thermos bottles uh, with bodies in each one of them. Yeah, that's right. And, and the patients are, are stored there and there are people on staff who maintain the liquid nitrogen levels and, and watch after them to make sure that, you know, all is all is well. Now, Grant, you got into this because you're interested in the intersection of science and pseudoscience. But of course, that begs the question, how do you tell the difference? I mean, some people who are promoting pseudoscience concepts, in my opinion, say to me, it is science and it's my problem, not theirs. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in, in pseudoscience, not so much as, as, as a philosopher of science, as, as someone who would try to demarcate science from pseudoscience, but, but as an historian, as a sociologist, I'm interested in, in those instances where the term pseudoscience is deployed. If, if you look at the context in which cryonic suspension emerged in the early to mid-1960s, um, the kinds of ideas that the progenitors of the practice were advocating weren't exactly, you know, far out. I mean, they weren't, it wasn't completely far out to propose freezing human corpses in the 1960s. And in order to understand the significance of, of that claim, you have to look at, at what was going on with the space race. And this is when you can begin to understand the ties of cryonic suspension to the space race. Cryonic suspension came to be uh, proposed and advocated in the wake of, of Sputnik, right? So at the height of the of the Cold War, NASA, you know, uh, assembled 
teams of people to, to think the unthinkable, so to speak, right? Um, so basically, two scientists, engineers, Nathan Klein and uh, Manfred Kleins, proposed instead of trying to replicate an Earth-like environment in outer space, right, why don't we try to adapt human beings to an environment for which they weren't prepared, evolutionarily speaking, by way of merging them with certain kinds of, of machine technologies in order to facilitate space travel, right? And it's in this context that the cyborg or the cybernetic entity was created. So clients and clients came up with a list of, of various cybernetic aids for space life that they thought would be able to to you know, allow humans to survive in space without an Earth-like uh, environment to maintain them. And, and one of the techniques that they proposed in response to the issue of, of resource consumption, right, was, was suspended animation. How would you facilitate, you know, interstellar travel from Earth to the moons of Jupiter, which would have taken something like six years and in the 1960s? They proposed freezing or controlled human hypothermia um, as a way to facilitate this. It was a, a cybernetic technique for space life, so to speak. This was being proposed by NASA in 1960, right, at the very moment that you begin to see the emergence of cryonic suspension as a technique not to facilitate travel through to the moons of Jupiter, right, not to facilitate interstellar travel, but rather to facilitate time travel to to the technologies of an envisioned future where technologies would be able to facilitate reanimation. So what you see is a kind of, of a poaching of, of this idea that has legitimacy within the context of the aerospace industry, right? I mean, and just to, to clarify, this idea was initially well received by NASA to the extent that it was it received funding. It was it was cut short. It was it was discontinued. The cyborg spaceflight program uh, was ultimately um, found to be uh, infeasible given the technologies that were that were available then. Well, let, let me just ask you: Can you tell me how far did they get? Did they do any experiments? Did they send any frozen critters anywhere, or did they freeze critters? I mean, did they do anything that was experimental? No, no, nothing, nothing experimental. I mean, there, there were kinds of experiments going on in cryobiology at the time. Uh, golden hamsters are probably the most famous um, that were being frozen and revived. They died shortly thereafter, but any kind of mammal uh, of any size substantially bigger than that was, it was ultimately fatal. But still, it was speculated that if we can freeze and revive hamsters, right, that, that at some point we'd be able to freeze and revive animals of increasing complexity. Okay, so NASA was semi-serious about this, but today a lot of people regard cryonics as, you know, pseudoscience. That's mm -hmm. what they would call it. When, when did that shift take place? I mean, it's been half a century since NASA was interested. There are any number of events that, that I could cite to talk about, you know, how and why cryonics came to be understood as, as pseudoscience, but basically... There are kind of a few issues at play here that need to be that need to be understood. The first is that the damage that's incurred in the course of freezing is is catastrophic, right? Once you freeze uh, a human corpse along the lines that that they were advocating and that they were doing, that the cellular damage is, is catastrophic. What what happened, and, and part of the reason that that the pseudoscience label was was deployed, is that the argument was being made to freeze people anyway because the technologies that resided in the future would be able to repair the damage that was being incurred in the present. So what you had were, were people who were pushing for a suspended animation program hoping that technology would at some point revive them. So when the cryonics advocates moved to freeze anyway, issuing a call to, to freeze now in the absence of any kind of, of evidence to demonstrate that the people they were freezing could be revived, that's when things got sticky. And that's, that's one key instance when the term pseudoscience was, was deployed to mark off what the cryonics folks were doing uh, as opposed to people within the cryobiology camps proper. Well, in other words, Grant, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that, you know, this was motivated by very uh, legitimate concerns, but there was no demonstration of science that seemed to work. I mean, they, they couldn't make it go. Right. Okay. Well, finally, Grant, one of the most interesting aspects of all this is how much people want to believe that cryonics might work, despite the lack of any evidence to <laughs> suggest that's true. And I don't just mean those working for the cryonics organizations. They're, they're businessmen, if you will. But the public... Why do they want to believe? Why is this so strong? Is it just nobody wants to die? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. We live in a, you know, 
science and technology have have placed on the defensive you know those forms of of knowledge and ritual practice that we've historically turned to in order to assuage the the existential terror that death uh, necessarily presents but you know science and technology have have also failed to replace with with scientific certainties the religious certainties that they've placed on the defensive so people are looking for something to believe in and this is this is one instance of that I think Grant Schofstall, thanks so very much for being with us today. Thanks very much for having me, Seth. Grant Schofstall is a visiting assistant professor of sociology at Williams College. So what we've heard in the show is that cold really does have its uses in medicine. We've heard its use in surgery and so forth. On the other hand, cryotherapy, that's still unproven. And, you know, frankly, it reminds me of the kind of trendy health treatments we've seen in the past, like vinegar shots or intestinal cleanses. On the other hand, I mean, there are people in the sports world who, who seem to think it really does help. And uh, as far as cryonics goes, well, I like the promise, but uh, so far that's all that is. You, would you put your body on ice if you could? I would if I thought that the chance was better than 0.01%. That you would be able to come back. Exactly. I'm sure they can put me on ice. (laughs) Well, thanks to the people who keep a cool head while helping us produce the show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance, and thanks to the vocal talents of Emma Bentley. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking skeptic check this episode. How low can you go? And if you thought it was cool and you'd like to hear more Skeptic Check or other Big Picture Science episodes, you'll find them on our archive at bigpicturescience.org. Now, if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because, well, podcasting may not make it into the 22nd century when you're eventually defrosted, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. And if you listen by using iTunes, we invite you to leave a review about Big Picture Science on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, well, email them all to bigpicturescience at seti.org and throw in some faint praise if you don't mind. Hey, you're the unfrozen guy from the 20th century, right? Last time I checked, I'm never going to get used to the 31st century. Caffeinated bacon, baconated grapefruit, Admiral Crunch... Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.